Hey, my name's Hayden Carroll. Welcome to the Faithful Perspective Podcast, a series where we discuss together those key gospel principles that lead to a successful, joyful, and productive life for Latter-day Saints and friends. Before we jump into anything, I want to give you an invitation. Do you know a Latter-day Saint who is passionate about something gospel-related? Do you know somebody who others could benefit from getting inside their head? If you know somebody that I might be able to interview on our Faithful Perspective podcast, please email me their information at faithfulperspectivepodcast at gmail.com. That's faithfulperspectivepodcast at gmail.com. I promise you, you're not going to want to miss out on my conversation with Brother Rao today. Now, I just want to take just a moment and give you some more context uh, before we jump into the actual conversation. You know how there are some people in your life who really just uh, have an influence for good in your life, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a teacher or, you know, a bishop or whoever. There are few people in my life just like you who have had what I would call a profound impact in my life. And that does include my, my parents and a couple other, you know, priestly leaders, young men's leaders. But one of those individuals you are going to be able to hear from, at least in my, one of those individuals in my life, you're going to be able to hear from him today. His name's Alan Rao, and I met Brother Rao, and you'll hear a little bit about this in the interview itself. I met him when I attended Southern Utah University. He was the institute director, and he taught a few classes there at the institute. And I just want to let you guys know how amazing and, and how beautiful his understand. first of all, his understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, his ability to articulate what he's feeling and thinking is incredible. Not a lot of people, I think, have that skill that he has. And also just his testimony and his love for the Savior, Jesus Christ. I could not think of a better person to discuss the topic that we're going to discuss today. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Alan Rao. Today, I have the awesome opportunity of interviewing Alan Rao, Brother Rao, at least Brother Rao to me. Uh, well, hi, how are you doing today, Brother Rao? I'm doing good, thanks. Well, just know how much we appreciate you coming on here and spending a little bit of your morning talking about an important topic. Now, for our listeners, I just want to give a brief introduction before I ask you to, to tell us about yourself. Brother Rao and I were connected in, what was it? 2015, I think it was during my freshman year of college. Uh, when I was a, a freshman, I took a, I think it was an advanced scripture study course at Southern Utah University, the institute there. And Brother Rao happened to be the institute teacher. And you were also the uh, institute director at the time. Is that correct? Yes. So we connected that way. And we've kept in touch now over the past five or so years. I graduated a couple years ago. You've moved away from Cedar City. We both moved away. And uh, we've kept in uh, brief contact. And I just want to thank you so much for being willing to chat with us today. Happy to be with you, Hayden. So let's go ahead and just begin with a brief introduction. Can you tell uh, tell our listeners a little bit about where you come from, maybe a little bit about your family, any work experience or church experience that you feel might be relevant to our conversation today? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, It's one of seven children. Most of my family's still there. I married uh, my sweetheart, Susan Roberts, who was born and raised in southern Utah. And we have six of our own children now, and we have seven grandchildren to bless our lives. Um, I got most of my education at BYU in uh, political science and organizational behavior, a master's degree in organizational behavior. 
I uh, started my employment with church education as a seminary teacher in, in Delta, Utah. Spent eight years in Canada teaching seminary and institute. Uh, spent 16 or 17 years in Cedar City uh, at the institute and teaching seminary. My last two years, I've been a curriculum writer in Salt Lake City working on revising the cornerstone courses for the institute program, which has been really exciting. I've had a wide variety of church experience, uh, a lot working with youth, um, opportunities to serve in capacities allowed me to get close to people and minister to them and and, and the challenges and the, the ups and downs of their lives. So I've had a rich church experience and family life. Well, I know, and I hope my I hope the listeners understand here in the next little bit how. Uh, and I just want to say this to the listeners: if there's one person that I can point to uh, who's an inspiration for me in, in my gospel study, it's Brother Rao. And I'm just so excited to be able to just pick his brain for 30 or 40 minutes here on on the podcast. And with with that, I just want to introduce the topic. And I, I want to do so by uh, Brother Rao and I decided it'd be best to start with just a scripture from the Book of Mormon to introduce our topic. And then I want to hand it over to Brother Rao and, and allow him to kind of give his commentary on the idea and, and why maybe he's thought about uh, this topic to be important to discuss. And then we'll just go from there. So let's go ahead and just start. I'm going to read from 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, this is Lehi speaking to his son, Jacob, just before he passes away. He says, And now, Jacob, I speak unto you, thou art my firstborn in the days of my tribulation in the wilderness. And behold, in thy childhood, thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. So with that scripture, Brother Rao, would you just quickly introduce the topic and then give us any... uh, any insight that you have on this scripture and this idea of, of uh, maybe suffering at the hands of others? What can you tell us? Well, this verse uh, really struck me a few years ago as significant because it sets up what has often been called the problem of evil, that how can a benevolent, all-powerful God allow uh, evil to exist or be so prevalent in this world? And that's a question that has troubled people and religious people for a very long time. Now, I won't get into all the details of the problem of evil, but what struck me about this verse is that it sets up uh, a way we can address this, that there are people in this world, in fact, all of us probably have suffered difficult things, not because we made poor choices, not because of anything we did, but because of the choices of others. And so Lehi here makes it really clear. Jacob, you suffered a lot in the wilderness because of the rudeness of your brethren. And and the word rude here is not just um, bad behavior. In the 1828 edition of the Webster's Dictionary, it, it includes vulgarity, coarseness, and even violence. And if you think about their experience in the wilderness, there are all sorts of things that happen there that uh, Laman and Lemuel perpetrate on the family. 
uh, you know, they, they are angry. They use harsh words. They beat their brothers with a rod. They bind their brother with strong cords. And today, in today's vernacular, we would call all those things uh, some form of abuse, mental, emotional, or physical. When we get to the, the experience on the boat, we have Laman and Lemuel, of course, tie up their brother and engage once again in what's called rude behavior. And then you have this passage here that I think would be helpful to read of, of what the parents are going through. And, and I'll just paraphrase. This is chapter 18 of 1 Nephi 17 through 19. They suffered much grief because of their children. They were on their sick beds because of grief and much sorrow. And they uh, were cast with sorrow upon a watery grave. These are parents that are suffering because of someone else's behavior. And, you know, over the years, I've, I've had, had the blessing of talking to a lot of people. What has really unsettled me maybe more than anything else is when you have uh, a very innocent, good person who has suffered uh, deep trauma because of just intentionally harmful and evil actions of another. Um, uh, let me give a little experience, and and then we can go further into this. Sure. So I remember years ago, a, a wonderful woman came into my office. I was serving in a priesthood calling. And I knew her somewhat, but as she walked in the office and I looked in her face, there was an anguish uh, that was palpable. And I knew at that very moment that when she was walking in there, she was bringing a very heavy burden. And as she sat down and I looked at her and there's kind of that, you know, a silence there that communicated a lot. She finally told her story and I won't go into the details of the story, but it's really simple. She had entered into a marriage in good faith. This was a second marriage. She had six children. And she soon discovered that this man was um, uh, destructive, manipulative, and threatening. And, and she felt this deep betrayal and this deep anguish and deep confusion. And I could tell at that very, very time in her life, she was on the edge about with her faith of how could this be? And, and when you sit in those moments, you, you know, say, well, how do you help? What do you say? I often hear people will say something like this. Well, it was meant to be this way. With It seems to me the underlying implication that somehow God wanted this. And I simply think that is a very dangerous idea that we have to accept that there's something called law. There's something called opposition. There's something called agency. And when people misuse their agency, they perpetrate evil in this world. And it's real, and it's all around us, and it's not God's doing, it's ours. But that still leaves this question hanging. Why did God allow that? 
um, and we can have a discussion about agency, but, uh, but I think I would prefer to focus on is how do we get through when we suffer at the hands of, of those who have done evil things? So there's a kind of a setup. I can finish that story later, but let me let you jump in here and and see where you'd like to go with that. Well, well, you know, uh, we could go any any route you'd like. The the first couple questions that have popped into my mind as you've been telling the story and this experience here is, and actually, can I just share one experience that came to my mind that you probably will remember? I don't, I don't know specifically when you said it, but I remember one time, whether it was in a institute class or it's um, at some, you know, YSA stake meeting or something in Cedar City. I remember one time, if, I, if, I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, I remember one time you said uh, you gave an invitation to the YSA in the room uh, to, to invite them to go to the temple, to the Cedar City temple, and to sit outside the temple and to watch the countenances of the people who walked in versus the countenances of the people who walked out. Do you remember saying that ever? Yeah, I do. Uh, and so I want to ask you about that. And right now we're talking about alleviating burdens is, is kind of the way that I'm taking it, right? God obviously does permit these things to happen, but how? maybe the more important question is how do we get through it? And I just want to ask you about the temple. In, in your experience, in your experience of, of you working with individuals in your ward or stake, what, what impact has the temple had? on alleviating these burdens for you or for others? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. Um, if when we look uh, deeply at the temple and we look at the underlying themes and messages, you know, the, the covenants we make and what those covenants are intended to do, it seems to me that everything in the temple is to bind us more deeply to Jesus Christ. You know, you got section 84, it talks about that in the ordinances thereof, meaning the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood, the power of godliness is manifest, right? Right. And so when we go to the temple and we participate in ordinances, it's my sense that that's one of the most profound ways that we access the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so when people go there intentionally and thoughtfully and worthily, I think they walk in with their burdens and they may leave. Well, they, their burdens won't disappear in the temple, but they gain uh, a greater power, a strengthening power to respond to them. And so for me, that is like a great way of looking at this. And because agency is real and if god honors our agency as part of his plan if he circumvents agency the plan really uh, dissolves into nothing there's no growth there's no character development so agency and the choices we make have to be honored but with the honoring of that agency comes you know the lot of the the hard stuff we deal with that and just to, the focus we had here is things that can happen to us, not because of sinful behavior on our part, because of sinful behavior of others. And what I love about the scriptures, and maybe we should read one more verse in Second Nephi, is that the Lord acknowledges the reality of that. And then he gives us this higher truth and principle to say, 
This is part of the experience. And the way you get through is by coming to the Savior. Would it be okay if we read Second uh, Nephi chapter 2 now? Sure. Verse 2. Um, it says after they had suffered because of the rudeness of their brethren, then you get this beautiful word, nevertheless. Like notwithstanding all that, or be, we know all that's happened, but here's your message of hope, this nevertheless. Jacob, my firstborn in the world, as thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. Now, if that is not just absolutely stunning and remarkable statement, I, when, when I read that and understood what it was saying, it infused hope into me that all the ugliness of this world would be corrected by him and that no one needs to remain a victim, that no one needs to hide in the shadows because of something that happened to them, that because of Christ, consecrate, he can consecrate it for my gain. And the word consecrate means to be set apart for a holy purpose. Now, I don't think the Lord's suggesting that there's anything holy in an evil act. But because of the Savior, he can take what was ugly, what was evil, what was hard. And if we go to him with it, he can consecrate it and turn it to our good and gain. And that changes everything about the way you see the world. And that's why I think people who go to the temple with the right spirit and access the Savior's atonement walk out empowered to deal with whatever's happened to them, including the things that have been perpetrated upon them. So I have lots of thoughts running through my mind and, and maybe too many thoughts to get through in this conversation, but I, I just want to ask some follow-up questions on, on all of the, among, amongst all the great things that, that you're sharing with us. My first question is, uh, w- without, without obviously revealing anything too sacred from the temple, can you be a little bit more, is it possible for you to be a little bit more specific on how, you're, you talk about DNC 84 where the power of godliness is manifest in the ordinances thereof. How do, in your, in your opinion, your experience, how do those ordinances give us access to the, the power of godliness or the atonement, this healing power that you're speaking of? Can you, are you able to specify a little bit with that? I know it's in the temple and we, we want to be careful about that, but how do you feel about that? Yeah. Uh, um... Well, I I don't want to suggest it's secretive or complicated. So this is the way I view it. When you go to the temple, you perform an ordinance, which is a sacred holy act that is authorized through the priesthood. And the ordinance uh, for me is almost like a way that something's unlocked for us. Something is given to us. And you think about the symbols that uh, are surrounding the ordinance. I think they're all teaching that you're coming here to receive something. You're coming to, to obtain something that you can get in no other way and no other place. And then as you perform an ordinance, you make a covenant, right? Mm-hmm. You promise God that you will do certain things. And he says, in return, I'm going to give you 
promised blessings, and, uh, and I think implicit in all of that is power. And so when you perform an ordinance in the way it's intended, you unlock the power of that ordinance because of your faith and who stands behind the ordinance, who actually underwrites it. It's almost like, you know, for me, going to the temple is like meeting with the servants of the Lord, but even the Savior himself, and, and receiving what I need from him to be empowered. So it's the symbolism all points for me to that direction. In fact, the word symbol um, is a comparison of two things. Anciently, I read somewhere in one book that uh, it's like if you anciently you broke a bone in half, you'd have two pieces of that bone. But for them to fit together, someone has to have one and the other, and then and then you could put them and they'd be an exact fit. It's like we have only part of it. We come with part of our faith, but someone else has to complete it, and that's what the Savior does. And when those two things uh, come together in a seamless way, uh, we are then made whole through him. We're empowered through him. So just to, to clarify for myself and for our listeners, it sounds to me like th- this idea of why God permits evil, and maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the, the question is not why does God permit evil, but rather how can we overcome this evil? And, and, and don't get me wrong, I think it's okay to ask that question. We can talk about that. But if I'm understanding correctly, Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, they, in order to preserve agency, if I understand that correctly, they allow evil things to happen. And because of that, they it, it reminds me, uh, like in the Garden of Eden, right? The Heavenly Father presents, you know, the Savior with his plan and says, if they eat the fruit, we will provide a Savior for them. Almost, almost like the backup plan is the primary plan. Is that fair to say? How do you feel about this idea that they've maybe planned for this? Yeah, well, I, I think that would be based on my reading of Scripture and my experience in the temple. Yeah, I like the way you framed it. The Savior isn't the backup plan. He's the center of the plan. Um, he, they knew we, they knew what would we would face here and what we would do with our agency and the mistakes we'd make, um, and that the only way forward was for us to come here and get the agency, but we had to have his help so we weren't eternally condemned by that agency. Uh, Bruce, Elder Bruce Hafen has this great line. He says, the, and I'm just paraphrasing, the atonement of Jesus Christ allows us to make our choices and not be condemned by our choices, meaning um, if we engage the Savior, we can make choices and learn from them and grow from them without being eternally condemned by them. And so, yeah, I think you're right, Hayden. The Savior is the plan. I, I do my best to teach my my students that. And when we talk about repentance and sin, I always try to make it as clear as possible, and I'll, and I'll make it clear for our listeners, hopefully, that... And I always tell my students, I say, this is not a permission slip to go sin, but I hope you realize that sin is part of the plan, right? Heavenly Father knows your weakness. He actually gives them to you, and he he 
almost, and again, you have to be so careful on, on how you interpret this, but he almost expects you to sin, and then he expects you to repent. So, so now, now I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but so can we, can we just answer this one question? And if there is not a good answer, we, we don't have to solidify it. But can I just ask you, this is just to kind of, uh, not to get it out of the way, but just to make sure we, we, we cover it in, in a way. The question that you've posed to me uh, recently is, if God is good, why does he permit evil? Can we solidify an answer on that really quick before we move on? Yeah, and I, I want to just draw something you said earlier. I, you know, the questions we ask matter, and I, I think that question is, in a way, what's called what could be termed a convergent problem, meaning some people term it as a convergent problem. I mean, they take two ideas and they pit them against each other and hope that they'll come to this, this kind of simple solution. And what's wrong with the question is it, it doesn't take into to account this larger picture and these greater truths. So God is good, and God has all power to bring about his work. Um, but he also has instituted laws whereby we get to learn and grow. Remember in Alma 42, it has that phrase, and if God violated the law of justice, he would cease to be God. Right. I often wondered what that meant, right? Is there some abstract notion of justice floating out in the universe? And I, I no longer think that's the case. I think really what that gets down to is God honors human agency and he protects it. Whatever direction it takes. And if he were to say to you, Hayden, you know, I just like you so much, and I'm just going to ignore all these choices you've made, and there's no consequences for them. What happens then? That sounds like a plan that was uh, proposed in the pre-existence. <laughs> right. We want, it's, yeah, it's choice without consequence, right. or choices, and we only take what we want. But we can't learn and grow that way, right? God's plan is a learning and growing plan. Right. So, yes, God is good. And he is powerful, but the plan, but he allows these things to happen so our human growth and development can occur and we can become more like him. But, and here's the larger truth, none of that will mean anything if there's no savior, if there's no redeemer, if there's no atonement of Jesus Christ to help us overcome the negative effects of our choices and redeem us from them so we can learn and grow and become without being eternally condemned. Wow. There's so much to unpack there. The first thought that comes to my mind now is, is I'm really convinced now that the question of is, if God is good, why does he permit evil? That's really the wrong question to be asking. In other words, if there is no evil in the world, is it possible for us to grow? Right? If, if there is no opposition, if there is no room for repentance or healing or need to come unto the Savior, right? what, are, what are we doing here? How do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I think it's a rich idea. And, and what it does is it changes the discussion a bit. And so you spend, you know, if you're always being mad at God because there's bad things in the world, there's hard things. Well, that 
lets you live as a victim, right? Or you think you're a victim, you think you're hard done by. But if we change the framework like you've just done and say that agency is this priceless gift that allows us to be human, that allows us to grow, that allows us to experience, that allows us to think, it allows us to be aware of our own thoughts and feelings. It allows us to repent. It allows us to love. It, all these things. And if we embrace that this, that's agency, then the problems we face around us aren't just, they're, they're a test, but they're also an education. And so then life becomes, what it, then, then the question changes from, why did this happen to me? Or why, God, did you let this happen? And the question becomes, well, what do I need to learn from this? How can I grow from this? How can I access God's grace and goodness to become what he knows I can become? And all the most remarkable people I know in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and others, uh, you know, this isn't just an LDS thing. I think when we connect with God at this higher level and see that he is journeying with us, that he wants us to become, and he provides all the help to do it, then you can live every day with joy, no matter what's going on. Now, what, what, what you're saying, this change in mindset, this, it makes so much sense to me. Like, it aligns perfectly with the purpose of the plan of salvation, right? As we, ter- I mean, we, we're, we're often quick to teach that, you know, this plan is about Jesus Christ. It's about repenting. And this aligns perfectly with that. And instead of saying, God, why is, you know, if God is good in almost a doubting way that, and that question, I just keep going back to that. I, I once, uh, I had a student uh, in one of my classes two years ago, her name was Tatum. And uh, one time we had a seminary lesson on this topic and uh, we watched a little video of basically somebody who was asking this question and kind of had some doubts. And after the video was over, she raised her hand and she said, I hate this question. She said, this is one of the most selfish questions that have, that has ever existed. Like, wh- why why are we blaming God for the evil that happens? Or why, why are we getting mad at him? And, and I just, I took a step back and I just appreciated so much because that, that, that mindset doesn't align with what we teach about the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is about becoming, right? It's about becoming like him and without this evil or whatever you want to call it. Uh, even at the hands of other people like Laman and Lemuel and, and Joseph and, and their family, uh, it just it just makes so much sense. Uh, now, now whether you have a comment on that, Brother Al, or I was going to ask you, would you want to finish that story that you're telling about with that sister that, who you met with maybe years ago? Where do you want to go with this? Yeah, well, I can finish that story. So uh, that experience is imprinted on my mind uh, so deeply because I could see the precarious place she was, how on the edge she was between hope and just utter despair. And I don't remember the details of the conversation, but I do remember feeling that if I don't get this right tonight, I, I just need to be represent the Lord well. And I think it went okay. And she came back and we visited for off and on for probably a year. And it wasn't uh, not long after that. And I, I mean, I could just start seeing a change happening to her that the light 
was coming back to her eyes, that she saw a way forward. And the last time I saw her um, was actually in Cedar City. So it's been a few years now. And she introduced me, this is years later, uh, from the, that initial experience to a wonderful man who she married and they're, they, they have this wonderful blended family and there's hope in her eyes and there's strength in her step. And there's this remarkable testimony of how Jesus Christ really is the way through and his grace was sufficient for her. And, and you know, she could have spent years dwelling on the evil of the man that had disrupted her life, had betrayed her, had abused her. And I'm not diminishing anything. I don't think these things change overnight. And anyone who may be listening that's a victim of abuse, I have nothing but the greatest concern and hope and sympathy or whatever words we can come up with. But I've come to believe that with the Savior's help, we can have every experience consecrated for our gain. And there's a statement by Elder Holland that maybe I can read and then we can see where you want to sure. go with this. He said, every experience can become a redemptive experience if we remain bonded to our Heavenly Father through that difficulty. In essence, man, man's extremity is God's opportunity because he can turn the unfair and inhumane and debilitating prisons of our lives into temples. He's referring here to Joseph Smith and Liberty Jail, mm -hmm. or at least into a circumstance that can bring comfort, revelation, divine companionship, and peace. And I just believe that, Aiden. I just really believe that. Wow. You, you know, and here's maybe in, in conclusion, I guess we have a few minutes left. In conclusion, based on what Elder Holland's saying and what we've kind of been talking about in the past couple of minutes, my question for you is, uh, we've, ta we've talked about uh, the temple and how the temple can help us be binded to the Savior. And, it's, and if, I, if I heard it correctly, uh, Elder Holland just, just mentioned something about binding ourselves or connecting. Is, is that right? What, what, what were his exact words about that? Uh, he talked about, um, just look here. Did he use the word binding? Bonded right? to bonded, oh, bonded to our heavenly Father. Bon okay, so that's my question for you. Can you give some some thoughts on that? We've talked about bonding ourselves through you know to the Savior and to God through the temple. Is there any other what what other method? What other uh, opportunities do we have outside of the temple to bond? Because that sounds really like the antidote the the antidote to to burden is what we're talking about today, right? How do we relieve ourselves of the burdens of this world, including those who are um, posed upon us by other people, where else can we go, Brother Rao, in your experience, to be bonded, to bind ourselves to the Savior and to, to receive His atoning grace? How do you feel about that? Uh, I, I think it's a beautiful question, and I'll just speak from my own personal experience and not uh, uh, suggest I know how this works for everybody. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think for me, uh, one way that I have bonded my mind and my heart to the Savior is by reading the Book of Mormon. 
the Christ-centered nature of the book is such that if you read it carefully and seriously, you, you just can't but be thinking about him, just feel more connected to him. It's, as one author said, it's the Christ-drenched text. And so for me, just one way is through the word of God. I mean, one of his names is the word, and there's a reason for that. Uh, because when you plant the word, his word in your heart, uh, that activates him in your soul. It's the one way you can bond with him. Another way that I, as I've matured and grown older, that's been really crucial for me to bond with him is through the sacrament. And, you know, in, in the COVID era where we, church meetings are restricted and, and uh, you know, we, we've, I think, had a chance to focus more intently on the opportunity to have the sacrament. And sometimes uh, we've been authorized in our ward and state to take the sacrament at home during these times. It's just been my wife and I. And it's been sacred and beautiful. And there's a feeling as you renew that covenant that he's renewed in your life. Um, I would suggest also that another way I found to bond with the Savior is is through service, is, is trying just to emulate him. And it seems to me that every time I've tried to help and lift the soul, and I think about how the Savior would do that, and it's not always easy for me to answer that question in all the variety of circumstances of life, but as I'm intentionally thinking about him, I feel like I receive guidance from the Holy Ghost that allows me to feel more bonded and strengthened by him. So that's not a comprehensive list, but those are maybe three that have been on my mind recently. No, those are wonderful. So if I, if I heard you correctly, book of, reading the Book of Mormon, t- partaking of the sacrament, and serving others. Can I just make one comment about the first one? Actually, okay. I, have a, I have a question for you. I don't know if you, you may or may not remember this conversation between you and I. We had lots of wonderful conversations. One of the conversations I had with you several years ago was in your office, and uh, it was when you and I were on the Institute Council, or you were one of the, one of the advisors, and I was working with you on some projects there. And uh, part of our conversation somehow took a tangent and uh, went on a tangent, and I just I, I expressed to you at the time, when I, it was my senior year of, of university, and I expressed to you the concern that I had that I, I was more drawn to words of the living prophets than or, or books by apostles, you know, in different publications there than I was to the Book of Mormon. And uh, I can never forget the look you gave me and the, uh, ca- the, the sound and enlightening counsel that you gave me when I expressed that concern to you. You made it very clear, especially, and you knew that I wanted to teach seminary for the church. You made it very clear that I needed to figure out how to be uh, encapsulated and enlightened by the Book of Mormon. Although I, you didn't diminish the words of the living prophets by any means, but you just, it imprinted on my, on my heart the importance of the Book of Mormon from that conversation. You basically said, if you're not reading your Book of Mormon for 30 minutes every day, especially if you want to be a seminary teacher, you got to figure out how you're going. The Book of Mormon is, is one of the most, if not the most important book of scripture. And so I want to ask you, and I don't know if you remember that conversation, but 
I, I want to ask you, why did you tell me that then? And why, why now? Why have you mentioned the Book of Mormon? Why not the New Testament, Old Testament, D&C, Progate Price? Why the Book of Mormon? Why, how does the Book of Mormon bind us? Why, why was that your choice of scripture when I asked you about binding ourselves to the Savior? Yeah, um, I'll put it this way. So I love all book of scripture, all of them. I, I never tire of reading the Gospels, or uh, reading the letters of Paul, whatever it may be, the Doctrine and Covenants. But the Book of Mormon is unique in that it has some, some declared purposes by the Lord. And one of them is to bring us to Christ. President Benson said that the golden question of the Book of Mormon is, do you want to learn more of Christ? And I would uh, just append to that that, do you want to know him more deeply? Do you want to know why he did what he did? Do you want to have the most comprehensive explanation of his atonement and what it means and how it can be applied? Do you want to understand the meaning of grace? It's a curiosity, for instance, why Latter-day Saints don't understand grace better and don't talk about it more, embrace it more, especially in light of what the Book of Mormon teaches about it. So I, I just don't think it's a book. Um, another book, and I know you don't either, but it is a divinely ordained and sanctioned book to, for as many purposes, but at its very core, perhaps its central purpose is to draw people to Christ, to convince people of Christ, to prove to the world that the New Testament is the Word of God, that the account of the Bible is true, but I also believe there's a power, and President Benson once again said, there's a power that will come in your life as soon as you begin a serious study of the book. Now, I've, I believe that so deeply that I, I think it's in, in the time and day we live in, if you want to stay connected with the Savior in a deep and powerful way, that certainly is going to be a crucial way of, of doing it. Wow. I, I want to just say thank you personally for that perspective, because I've never before this moment, I've never considered the Book of Mormon being able to bind myself to the Savior in, in, in such a way that I would do at the temple. Right? I, I, I viewed the temple ever since I was endowed at 18 years old of being this very sacred and holy place and place to commune with God, but it's never, it's, it's never uh, been relevant or, or not relevant rather but uh apparent rather it's never been apparent to me that the book of mormon can do the same thing and from what you're telling me that that's kind of maybe the purpose is to draw ourselves unto christ now thank you very much now with that in conclusion brother Rao, is there anything else that you would say in closing for our listeners on this topic i know we, we've kind of gone off on a few tangents i think they're all connected but is there anything that you would say in, in closing here for us um, I guess this one thought, uh, you know, I started off setting up the question of the problem of evil that allowed us to really focus on the solution in Christ and the hope in Christ, and he's the key to our progress and growth. And uh, I just had this thought come to my mind, and we conclude on this. A few years ago, President Nelson gave a talk about joy and he said that uh, we can have joy in every part of our lives 
regardless of the circumstance. And I felt very challenged by that talk because I could think of times in my life where I didn't feel a lot of joy because of challenges or hard things that come along or things that maybe had hurt me or whatever it is. And so I felt challenged and I read the talk over and over and, and thought about it and pondered it. And, and you know, there's that line in the talk where he says that the joy comes because of the focus of our lives. And when our lives are focused on the savior and we really understand who he is and we really believe he can do what he says he can do, then what else are you to feel but joy that though I am I sin and fall short of the God, the glory of God, I know that through Christ I can repent. And though I am harmed by the actions of another people through the grace of Jesus Christ, I can be strengthened and healed. And though I experience a natural disaster, and lose my goods or whatever it may be, I know that through the Savior, he'll provide a way forward in my life. And when that kind of just sunk deeper into my heart, I understood what President Nelson was saying, that in the Savior is the key to joy. And it's not dependent on what other people do or what other people say or the political environment we're in or what virus may be around us. If we know him, believe him, trust him, we can live with joy. And that will be my final thought. With, with that beautiful testimony, Brother Al, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. This is, this is such an important topic. I, I mean, it's, it's relevant for everybody, no matter who you are. If you're not struggling now, uh, just as we've said, Heavenly Father has almost planned for us to have these trials that will turn unto him. It's like Ether 1227, right? He gives us weaknesses and we may say trials so that we'll be humble and turn unto him. Brother Al, thank you so much for being willing to uh, chat with us today. I appreciate you. Yeah. Well, thank you. Great to visit with you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing with a friend and we'll catch you next time on the Faithful Perspective Podcast.